Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We conclude our week in the series called Passion. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 13, verses 20 to 30, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Man of the Night. At one point in Jesus' ministry, and and this is recorded in John 11, verse 9, the text says, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Now, let me begin with those words. If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble. It's a metaphor. You know, if you walk in the night when there is no external source of light, you're no different than a totally blind individual. Each footstep feels unsafe. The path ahead might well be level and predictable, but it could just as easily be you know, walking off a cliff. You just can't know when the next step will end in you know, either injury or even death. In a sense, all human beings walk in darkness. The moral decisions that the human race daily makes are decisions based on their own impression of what's right, what's wrong. But in truth, they don't know where their moral decisions will lead them. Whole cultures also walk in moral darkness And in truth, all cultures, including our own, are only one footstep away from persecuting everyone who disagrees with their moral stance. That is, they stand ready to plunge over cliff into ruin. It's also true in terms of the uncertainty that plagues the human race. We don't know what the next step will bring. You know, on the way to work, it might be a fatal car accident. Maybe it's just a normal day. Each future step is made without the slightest idea of what it holds. That's called darkness. You might remember what Jesus said recorded in our previous chapter, John 12, 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. So when we walk in the light, we walk in faith, following the footsteps of Jesus, and we know exactly where we're going. We're being led into the Father's presence. We're being led into eternal life. We walk in such a way that all our steps are crafted by the hand of the one who determines our best possible future. Not so in darkness. Darkness will of necessity always end in injury and ruin. And we come now to a section in John where we will find the very last mention of Judas' inclusion among the 12. From now on, there will be the 11, that is, until after Pentecost. So we're about to read our text, so let's review where we've been or where we've left off. John 13, 19 to 20 said, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it takes place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, you might recall that that Jesus said that someone who is breaking bread with him right then, right there in the upper room, was going to betray him. He's telling them about it now so that when it happens, they won't be asking themselves, I mean, how did this happen? That is, you know, they won't say, well, Jesus didn't know what was going on in the guy's mind. Perhaps he didn't know all things after all. No, Jesus wants to make sure that doesn't happen. And so in order for them never to doubt, he tells them. But then he doesn't want this incident to take their eyes off the goal. Nothing's changed. He's still sending them out to reach the world. If anyone you go to accepts my message, it's as if they're accepting me. For you very soon now will be going out in my name. So that's where we left off. But now we still have to deal with the betrayer. 
So let's begin and read today's text. I'll start with verse 21 of chapter 13. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. You know, up to this point in John's gospel, there were already three occasions in which Jesus had mentioned that one of them would betray him. But it had up till then been, well, what shall we say? It'd been less direct, not so straightforward. But, but now looking around the room at the 12, he says it as directly as he can. One of you, one of you 12 reclining at the table with me. Those words must have been jarring. Already they're in a state of unease because Jesus has been talking about his coming sufferings, and they simply don't make sense of that. I mean, wasn't he the Messiah, and weren't they going to join him in ruling in his kingdom? Isn't that why he had chosen them? But now he's going to suffer, and now one will betray him. Is this the end of their dreams? So that evening is becoming most disquieting. And says John, who who was there, you know, at that very moment, Jesus was troubled in spirit. And John means to say that his inner anguish was quite visible to everyone around the table. And we have to assume that it was not just John who noticed. I think everyone around the table sensed it. Then rather than just saying that one would betray him, John says, he testified to it. So the Greek word here is martyreo. It's where we get our English word martyr. But of course, in Greek, the word doesn't mean what it means in English. Rather, it means to witness something. So here, in what should have been the safe company of the twelve, Jesus is bearing witness that profound and unspeakable evil has entered into the camp. He has seen it, and he bears witness to it. And the reality of so great an evil in so holy of a place has created a deep inner anguish so great he can't hide it from his disciples. But of course, we have to think about this from the perspective of Judas. He knows at this moment that not only does Jesus know, but also that he is about to be exposed. So how will he react? How deeply sold is he to evil? How dark has he become? Is it possible even at this moment that he might come forward and repent of where he has been going? I mean, all of us know darkness is a matter of degree. You can be in a cloudless night and there's enough light to see, or you can be out on a cloudy night, it's much darker. And then again, you could be at the bottom of a mine shaft where the darkness is complete darkness. It's absolute and total. How do these words from Jesus actually affect Judas? Of course, as John relays the account to us, he begins with the reaction of the 11 and then works his way to the one among them who seems ready to be the betrayer. Let's read verse 23. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. This now is the first reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved. That same description will come up on three more occasions in the book of John. The second time happens when, you know, Jesus entrusts the care of his mother to the disciple whom he loves, next at the empty tomb, and then last after the resurrection at the Sea of Galilee. And furthermore, if you notice, our English translation says that this disciple was reclining at table at Jesus' side, but The literal translation says he was reclining at table in Jesus' bosom, or most likely with his head on Jesus' chest. But you have to get a proper picture of how they were seated. Remember, they're not sitting on chairs, but rather they're sitting on the ground. So, you know, Leonardo's painting of the Last Supper really is quite wrong. So as they sit on the floor, their feet are off to the side, and they would be leaning on one arm. 
You know, in the case of this disciple, he would have been sitting with his back to Jesus, and then as he spoke to Jesus, he would lean back to talk to Jesus, and his head would literally be resting on Jesus' chest. You know, for most of us in the West, it almost sounds sexual. We're ashamed to admit it, but it sounds that way. But that's just because that's how it is in our culture. I've been to countries all over the world where it's quite common for young men to walk down the street hand in hand or even arm in arm, and it's definitely not a sign of homosexuality. See, in those cultures, homosexuality is actually frowned upon. But rather, walking hand in hand or arm in arm, it's a sign of friendship. And furthermore, even in Western culture, there was an era, there was a time gone by in which it was quite common for men to openly express profound love for each other. And again, those men would have marveled at our perversion, that we would somehow assume that those words had an underlying sexual content. Or you might think of when David confesses his love for Jonathan. He says, your love has been sweeter to me than that of women. He's not expressing a sexual thought at all. See, the reason we have so much difficulty with this kind of an expression is that in our culture, we have come to assume the kind of sensuality that fills our culture, we have assumed that's normal to all cultures. Actually, it's only normal to cultures that have become as perverse as ours. Now, historically, The disciple whom Jesus loved has always been identified as John. He's the author of this gospel. So why then would John address himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? Well, probably because he was the youngest of the group and Jesus took special interest in him and cared for him. But I say all of this to indicate that up till now, just by the posture of those sitting around the table, that the formal part of the meal, the eating of Passover, had not yet begun. Up till now, they were informally sitting with John resting his head on Jesus' breast. And in that moment, Jesus makes his shocking announcement. And everyone's stunned. They thought this was going to be a feast of love. But now, should it become a feast of betrayal? Dr. Neufeld wrote in his series, Passion, The Passion of Jesus is a story of his suffering, but it is also a story of his zeal. We see Jesus with a goal firmly fixed on one thing, and he'll not be detracted. In the Gospel of John, we see Jesus absolutely certain about his mission, and as we follow his steps, we witness not a tragedy, we're witnessing the passion of our Lord. You know, in unique and challenging times, we want you to know that we're here for you, but more important, We're in the hands of our Lord, who gave his all that we might be secure in his presence. May we feel the assurance of our salvation this Easter season. And may his presence fill us with an inexpressible joy and a certainty of hope that can only come from Christ. To discover all the Bible teaching resources available to you through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Let's read John 13, 23 to 25. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, 
It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, I have explained the seating arrangement as I have to help us understand that it is very likely that the rest of the disciples didn't hear what Jesus said to John. So you might imagine that Peter is sitting next to John, and since in that seating arrangement, John is sitting between them, and so Peter asks John, perhaps even quietly, to ask who Jesus is referring to. You know, I don't think it's impossible that at that moment, Peter is genuinely outraged. You know, if I understand his personality correctly, I think that's how he would have dealt with just such an announcement. Now, since Jesus dips the morsel and gives it to Judas, I have to assume that given their posture that he's not reaching across the table, but that Jesus has so arranged it that John, whom he loves, and Judas, the betrayer, are sitting one on one side of him and the other on the other side. And so at Peter's request, John leans over, his head is now fully on Jesus' breast, and he asks, who is it? Now, given that Jesus speaks of taking a morsel of bread and giving it to Judas, and given that before it's over, the other disciples think that Judas has gone out to pick up some supplies, well, you have to assume that the formal Passover meal hasn't begun yet. I say all of that because John does not mention what is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I mean, those three Gospels speak of that part of the Passover meal in which Jesus will take bread, then wine, and say of the bread, this is my body which is broken for you, and and of the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So that part of the meal which led to the Christian ordinance, which we now repeat regularly, which we call the Lord's table or communion, that part had not yet begun. And the reason I'm making a point of that is because there are those who now argue for the inclusion of non-believers in the Lord's Supper. And I've heard it said, and it goes like this, well then, since even Judas partook of the Lord's Supper and ate bread, which is the body of Christ, and drank cup, which symbolizes his blood, well, they argue, since this had been given to Jesus, who are we then to withhold the cup of the Lord from anyone? Now, of course. That perspective is denied in the rest of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with those who want to go to pagan temples and then also to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So in 1 Corinthians 10.21, Paul says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You see, it's just not permitted. And then later in 1 Corinthians 11, 28 to 31, Paul says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In short, if you should eat the elements of the Lord's table without expressed faith and commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ, you come under judgment. It's therefore of note that before Jesus entered into that first sacred meal in which he announced the formation of a new covenant in his blood, he made sure that the betrayer would have no part of this. There would be no joy of the new covenant with him. (laughs) So let's get back to our drama. John is leading back and asking Jesus who it is. And then, I would have to assume this, Jesus speaks relatively quietly because clearly most in the room haven't heard what he said. And so now he takes a piece of bread that he breaks from a larger piece, and he says to John, it will be the one after I've dipped this morsel into a common cup and I've given it to him, that's the one. 
Again, because we assume that Judas is sitting on the other side, he's sitting on the other side of Jesus, we have to assume that Judas has heard every word of that. He knows what Jesus knows. He watches as Jesus dips the morsel into the common bowl and then turns to him and he offers it to him. Now, I'm going to argue at that moment, Judas does have a choice. He could have at that moment come clean. You know, he's been speaking with the religious leaders. They've been looking for a way to arrest and kill Jesus in some fashion when he's away from the crowds. But how are they going to catch him? Judas is their inside man. They've offered to reward him handsomely. Now, a, a great deal has been written about Judas' motivation. You know, however, the gospel writers never speculate about that. And it does us absolutely no good to speculate about it either. And, and I, for my part, you know, in my own imagination, try to recreate the scene in which Jesus now, with hand outstretched, is offering the bread to Judas. And at that moment, there's still time for him to refuse. Oh, Judas, don't take it. Break free from the grip of sin. But the bread is in Jesus' hand. It's an offer. Take it and damn your soul. Refuse it and repent and find life. There's a passage in Hebrew that causes a great deal of speculation, even fear among many. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You know, a great many people find this to be frightening, and, and for good reason. You know, behind this passage are a host of questions. Are the people who have received the knowledge of the truth, are they actually, you know, born-again believers, or is it possible for a born-again believer to deliberately carry on in repeated, unrepentant sin with a fist clenched out towards God? Well, I'm going to leave that discussion for another time. Hebrews 6 and, and Hebrews 10 both speak of that. But one thing is clear. I view the morsel offered to Judas as an offer. Yeah, you may take it, but should you take it, there is no way back. Here is the crossing of the Rubicon. Here is the great divide. Cross here, walk over this bridge, and it will burn after you've crossed. You'll be in a different kingdom with a different people. That moment, no matter how brief it was or how long, when the morsel of bread is stretched out towards Judas, I think is one of the most sobering moments in all of Scripture. It carries a divine warning that there are places we must all never go. How valuable to keep short accounts with God. How imperative to build our lives on repentance, lest the darkness overtake us. And here I hasten to add that anyone who walks over that divide will have no impulse toward repentance in the future. If you want to repent, you can do that. Do it now. And yes, it is true that Judas, in agony of despair, would eventually take his own life. But it is also true that he found no way out of his despair. He found no way back to the grace of repentance. That pathway was hidden from him. We come now to verses 27 to 30. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. It's horrible to think. At the moment he receives the morsel, Judas becomes a demon-possessed man. How often he had seen Jesus cast demons out of people, and how often had he seen that wonderful freedom when it all come? And yet with hardened and horrible resolve, he turns his back on the only hope that he has. And then as he leaves the room, all except John are in confusion as to why he's left the room. 
Some thought that there was something to buy. You know, even though it was late Thursday, that is, by our way of reckoning a day, there's no doubt some vendors would still have been about, and others thought that he had received instructions to give something to the poor yet there at that time. But Jesus and John knew that Judas was never coming back. And John adds one more note. It was night. How fitting. The man now inhabited by the prince of all demons goes to his rightful place. He walks out into darkness. From now on, he will not know where he's going. He does not know that the precipice lies ahead. He will shortly take his own life. The religious leaders will show him they don't care a whit, and Satan, his new lord and master, won't care about him either. Unlike Jesus, Satan will not love him or wash his feet, nor will he offer him a free choice. Judas walks out, and it's night. You know, the story of Judas is one that all people need to take to heart. In our day, when we hear stories of deconversions, they are now all too commonplace. There are people who say, you know, I've followed Jesus for some time, but I do so no more. For those of us who have tasted light for a moment, don't you ever turn away from the grace that is given you. Don't you ever take the morsel and pass over into the land of darkness. For how horrible that we should take a morsel when the riches of the kingdom of heaven is offered to us. How horrible to abandon that which is truly precious for a journey into the night, a journey into the darkness. John, I'm going to ask you a question only because I've heard this question uh, from a lot of people, and I think maybe we overlook it, but I think there's actually some truth to the question. The question would be, John, what is good about Good Friday? You know, I've talked about Judas going out and betraying Jesus and eventually dying on a cross. So, you know, all of the events around Good Friday are about, you know, suffering. Um, the, the, when we talk about the passion of our Lord in that sense, we're talking about his deep suffering. So it is a day of suffering. I do remember my mother when uh, I was a young boy. Uh, she forbade all of us children from laughter on Good Friday. This was a day of solemnity, and we are to act in accordance, and she made us know that. Uh, but, you know, this, the goodness of Good Friday is our redemption, of course. It is not only a day of solemnity, but it is a day of great joy because it is through the sufferings of Jesus. He bore our suffering on our behalf. We have been redeemed. We are freed from suffering. This is the only way in which salvation could be wrought. And so, even though we mourn, we delight. Thanks so much, John, and we just pray for you that this would be an incredible, blessed Easter season for you until we see each other again next week. May God bless. Who could have known where the world would find itself today? Well, we know nothing is beyond God, beginning to end. We find ourselves in challenging days, unprecedented for most. We're experiencing uncertainty, more questions, I suppose, than answers. But take courage, people of God. He is faithful. In response to our global circumstances, beginning March 22nd, Dr. Neufeld will be releasing a special video series each Sunday morning. This series has been designed to provide weekly Bible teaching, particularly for those who may not be able to currently worship with their church family. Join us this Sunday morning at backtothebible.ca as we search God's Word for today. And if you miss a message, no worries. Prior messages will be available online or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. 
For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.